Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, I'm Richard Bayless from Optus Sport. Welcome to Episode 2 of Football Belongs, Multiculturalism. The chapter that accompanies this episode, written by John Didlitzer, is available to read now on the Optus Sport app and website. If you missed the first chapter, The Outsiders, it's still available and so too, of course, is the first podcast episode for any time you like. That's enough from me. For now, it's over to your host, David Davudovich. Thanks once again to Optus Sports' Richard Bayliss. In the opening podcast, John Didelitzer set the scene for the Football Belong series alongside Andy Harper and Tracy Holmes. Episode 2 focuses on multiculturalism via the prism of the dramatic 2006 World Cup match watched by 5 million Australians, Socceroos versus Croatia in Stuttgart. One of our special guests featured in that game. The other didn't. No prizes for guessing. John Aloisi, the Socceroos legend, joins us, along with Australian public policy academic Andrew Weir, who authored Solved, a book that labels Australia a successful multicultural experiment. John has written this series, John Didelitzer, that is, of Football Belongs chapters, and like myself and tens of thousands of Australian Croatians, was torn during that match, even more so because his brother Joey was representing Croatia. The Socceroos squad boasted a number of ex-NSL and Victorian Premier League teammates and opponents for that matter, including childhood friend and North Geelong product Josip Skoko. John Didelitzer, we'll start with you and your recollections of this match itself. Yeah, I don't recall being fervently torn, David. I'll just say that I was pretty strongly in the Australian camp. which I've never been able to explain why. I, I, I think maybe my football journey had been through Australia and I had so many close contacts on the Australian team, notwithstanding the fact that my brother was actually playing for Croatia at the time. So I've never really got my head around my visceral reaction to wanting Australia to win, but maybe it's because we ultimately did go through. I, I jumped on the bandwagon pretty quickly. But certainly, you know, being in Stuttgart feels like it was yesterday. It was certainly one of the most moving, you know, 24 hours that I've experienced. And I'd had two pretty amazing experiences prior to that, that I'd consider, I always said they're on par with becoming a father. And that was one of our guests, John, scoring that penalty at the Sydney um, Olympic Stadium, um, which was quite surreal. But the game in Kaiserslautern um, to open the World Cup against Japan I've never experienced an out-of-body experience like I experienced that afternoon. It was an incredible day. It was hot. Um, we're down until the 77th minute. Tim comes on, scores two goals. Yeah. 
our guest, Mr. Aloisi, comes up with the third. And it was delirium. And again, for the next 24 hours, it was incredible. It was in just surreal is the only way you can describe it. And then you had to go on this journey. And two weeks later, or probably 10 days later, you're in, you're heading into Stuttgart and you've got Australia versus Croatia. The weight of history to which that match was anchored was palpable. So it wasn't something that on reflection you, you'd look back and thought, well, hang on, that was a pretty special moment, which often is the case. You're not in the present, in the moment, you're not seeing the history, but everybody walking to that stadium that had a background like ours felt it. Um, it was, it was immense. Um, you know, the, the, the tapestry, the historical tapestry that was woven together for that game is hard to replicate. And in a, in a moment, it told the story of, of an entire nation or a modern, the modern story of our nation. And we don't give it, we don't tell the story of football through that lens often enough. John Aloisi scored 27 goals in 55 Socceroos games, and it excludes the most important strike of the lot, which you just alluded to, John did. Let's say the Uruguay the one, the one penalty. Japan. <laughs> <laughs> the Uruguay penalty, that is, that uh, broke Australia's 32-year World Cup drought. Now, John Aloisi, you played in the Premier League, Serie A, La Liga, on big occasions in huge stadiums. Take us back to that night in Stuttgart and the significance of it. Oh, look, it meant uh, so much to us because our dream was obviously as kids was to play in a World Cup. And um, a lot of us, that was our third attempt of trying to get to a World Cup. But once we qualified, it was like we want to get through this group stage to show the world um, that Australians can play football. And, uh, you know, that game against Croatia meant a lot to many players because they they come from Croatian heritage and uh, and to the majority of the squad, if not all the squad, because it was probably going to be, or half the squad, our last uh, attempt at a World Cup. And um, so we knew we only needed a point to get through. And uh, for us to actually end up qualifying and, and getting through, the, through that group stage, which was a tough group when you look at it. You know, Croatia, um, uh, they were European uh, powerhouses at that time. You, we all remember the 98 World Cup, how well they did. Um, and so for us to get through that group with Brazil in there and Japan that were Asian champions was uh, a significant achievement. And that night there was was special because, um, you know, we got to experience uh, not only getting through, but uh, the atmosphere that I, you know, the atmosphere. There, there's a few games in my career that I remember the atmosphere. The, the, that night against Uruguay is, is one. Um, the Spanish Cup final when I played for Osasuna against Real Betis is another. And the Croatian game because it was a huge crowd and half of them was red and white and the other half was gold and um and just the noise during the game and then after the game when we were celebrating was uh, something that will live with me forever and did you get that sense of occasion uh, broadly speaking the, the 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 occasion that John Didlitzer just discussed and and all the attached emotion and significance yeah, we did. Uh, I did, uh, especially because I was close with a lot of uh, the, the Croatian boys that, uh, you know, it, it's funny because uh, I'll delve into it a little bit more. When we're growing up in Australia, we're classed, well, I was growing up as an Italian. 
Um, and and I know the Croatian boys were the same. That they, 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 they were like everyone knew them as the, the, you know the Croatian boys in the Socceroos squad or in the New South Wales team or the the Victorian team or South Australian team. When we went overseas or especially into those countries where our background was from, and when I went back to Italy to play, I was then looked at as an Australian. So. Uh, you know, it was, I could see that the, the, the Croatian boys wanted to beat Croatia as much as anyone else because of that as well, because they were Australians and they wanted to prove to, you know, their mother country, um, that, you know, they were strong. They, uh, look at, you know, what we're able to do when we, we come to Australia, uh, you know, our families and, and build a better life and, and then, you know, beat them at their own game. So I, I could feel that. I could feel it the night before as well when we just uh, are about to train and the, the Croatian team had finished training and we're getting off the bus and a few of the players like Josip Skoko is talking to uh, Joey Dilitsa that he grew up with in North Geelong. Uh, Simonic who grew up with quite a few players and uh, went to the Institute of Sport with them. Seric that... Uh, he went to the, uh, I think it was the, the Institute of Sport with a yep. few of them as well and grew up with quite a few of the players. So there, there was sort of friends playing against friends, but we were enemies the next night and um, until after the game when, uh, you know, you, you felt that they were happy for us just as much as if their country went through, uh, not only the players, but I think the supporters as well. And you went through really similar emotions to those Croatian boys only a few nights later when the Socceroos, of course, took on Italy in the round of 16. Yeah, and that's when I really felt what they would have gone through because, you know, especially going to the stadium, I remember being on the bus and sitting there and uh, you're focused and you're, and you're trying to uh, picture, um, you know, what you have to do during the game. But uh, the emotions were, were definitely there. I, I started to think about my grandfather who went to Australia in uh, the 50s, uh, four years before his family um, could actually uh, end up joining him to create a better life for his family. And, um, and, and I started getting tears uh, in my eyes that how proud he would have been of um, what we were able to achieve and what we we're doing and facing, you know, the Italians. And um, he, he wasn't alive during the World Cup, but obviously the my my dad, my mum, who also uh, come from Italian background, uh, you know, they, their emotions would have been exactly the same, you know, how proud they would have been, not only of, um, you know, myself, but the, 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 the family that uh, had come to Australia to, to have a better life and uh, so I would have uh, in that period I started to think what it must have felt like for the Croatian boys when they played against Croatia. Andrew Weir you boast a diverse academic background and you're currently the director economic development and international at the city of Melbourne where you're in charge of international education and relationships. Now before I touch on your book where did you watch the Australia-Croatia game? You of course weren't a part of it. No, I wasn't a part of it. And like a good number of Australians at the time, I think I jumped, jumped on the Socceroos bandwagon during that World Cup campaign, um, watching it with my mates. But for that particular game, I think I, I remember getting up really early um, and watching it from my lounge room from my house in Brunswick. And, um, you know, it was for someone who grows up with a different football code, getting on board an experience like that during that campaign was actually quite memorable and actually uh, is a good way of uh, 
changing almost changing my relationship with with the game I think I think and that that was a particularly important sort of moment in my life now you're here because your book solved is referenced in John Didelitz's chapters uh, the football belongs chapters specifically the multicultural one now uh, in your book solved you detailed how 10 countries solved 10 big problems such as Denmark reaching 100% renewable electricity by 2030 and Biotech Epicenter Boston boasting the most innovative square mile on the planet. And amid some of the local hysteria around ethnicity and multiculturalism here, uh, you cited Australia as a multicultural trailblazer, acknowledging the role of sport and football in this. Yeah, I do think you have to step back and have a look at how successful we've been. When you when you look at some of the figures, it's incredible. A third of us were, were born overseas. Half of us have got at least one overseas-born parent. Um, and yet, you know, that, and those figures are double um, the comparable figures in the United States or the UK or, or countries such as that. There's no other country in the, uh, in the developed world that comes close. And yet 80% or more of Australians think that multiculturalism has made Australia a better place to be. Um, and it's been an incredible success story. And, and you, when you look at some of the key metrics, I mean, children of migrants go on to achieve better results at school than children of Australian-born parents. That's really rare around the world. Most, in most countries, children of migrants do much worse uh, than children of, of native-born. But in Australia, it's actually the other way around. Almost on every measure, we're doing really, really well. John Aloisi, what were your score marks like? Um, I was uh, the exception to that rule. <laughs> <laughs> I can say my daughters are doing better, and I was born in Australia, but they were born overseas. That's the only uh, difference. John Didlitzer, you had some very good marks, uh, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, ducks of your uh, your school, and uh, went on to uh, to study law, but. Um, I'm happy to post my um, high school uh, marks online <laughs> at the appropriate time um, for those wishing to assess those. <laughs> Absolutely. Now, um, in reference to the chapters and your references to Solved, I guess when you read uh, Andrew's book, when did it occur to you that this was part of the Australian football narrative? Yeah, I, I had been thinking about you know, what football meant to me, but what it meant in the broader context to Australia. And in reading Solved, it really occurred to me that what football did was allow Australia to become the wonderful nation that it is. And what Andrew talks about in his book is that of all the nations in all the world, we're the ones that have mastered multiculturalism, which is an incredibly powerful prize, as it were. I mean, Immigration is fundamental to the growth of every single society, economically, culturally. Immigration is inevitable. And for us to be the nation that's been able to solve the growing pains that comes with that is a wonderful um, badge of honour to be wearing. And then when you know, I looked at this through a football lens and thought, well, our entire immigrant experience for me was spent in our football clubs. And, and I, I relayed that to my personal story where my grandfather, uh, my mum's dad, uh, my dad came later, but my mum's dad moved to Australia in the 1950s. And I, I talk about this in the chapter. He found a lot of barriers to assimilation. It was a very alien country. You know, as I said, there's no black coffees and, you know, little whiskies. You're drinking stout beer and, you know, Vegemite. So it's a totally alien culture. And what allowed him to actually build some 
structure in his life was a football club. That was something he was comfortable with. It's something his like-minded friends were interested in and they built a football club. And that allowed him to navigate what was an alien experience for him. Now, the next question for me was then how important was the, were these football clubs to then helping Australia become the sort of multicultural success that Andrew spoke about? Mr Speaker, Australia is the most the member successful for multicultural society in the world. Because it's pretty clear. I, I think it's beyond debate that multiculturalism in Australia has worked and will continue to work provided we have this same sort of approach um, to what it is we're doing. Yeah, and I think one of the things that makes Australian multiculturalism so successful is how well we do with settlement services. New migrants, uh, when they arrive, uh, are wrapped around uh, have wrapped around them as a whole bunch of support services that helps them find accommodation, uh, uh, um, navigate things like signing up for bills and utilities and working out where to get where to, where to buy the food that they're familiar with and comfortable with. But before the 1970s, Australia didn't really have those support services. You know, they, they didn't really exist in a really structured institutional way. And I think um, the local football club performed many of those services. They performed that role. It almost were the football club was the settlement service in a way, a place where, where people could develop their English skills, where they could become accustomed to uh, Australian cultural norms where they could expand their social networks, make the contacts that they needed to um, enable, them, enable them to get housing or uh, employment and, and more basically just to, to sort of minimise their homesickness. Yeah. And I think that, that played a really important role, I think. Yeah, and the thing about football is football is a cooperative venture. So you come together with 20 other teams or 12 teams or 50 teams to form a league competition and league structure. So you're, you're, you're actually engaging with all these other communities in an effectively safe space. So if you're a Croatian community or a Greek community or, or a British community, you're engaging with these people in a shared experience once a week. So it builds an empathy and an understanding between these different uh, cultures. And, you know, when you fast forward um, to that game in 2006, it was really, it just really dawned upon me this would come full circle. And Andrew talks about this really effectively in his book is this, it's a two-way discussion. So it's not just the Aussies looking after the incoming migrants, it's the incoming migrants then giving back to the mother country. And I couldn't think of a more compelling um, snapshot of that, that night in Stuttgart, where you had Australia had given a home to all these migrants who would come into Australia. And it's not just the Southern Europeans, whether it's John or Skoko or Viduka, it's, it's Tim Cale. Yeah. Tim Cale's mother's a, a Pacific Islander. And the immigration policies, Andrew, you can probably correct me, the immigration policies around Pacific Islanders was incredibly draconian for, for many years. Um, yeah, the White Australia policy um, put paid to extending full rights to Pacific Island communities. And it was only as we broke down those White Australia barriers that allowed um, the Pacific Islanders to become integrated into our community. So here we had the success of multiculturalism allowing these young kids to fulfill their dreams. And in turn, they went out there and represented a country wonderfully and gave back to the crowd there who, as you know, were, was the largest single exodus of Australians from Australia since World War II. So there's this huge give and take. So Andrew, I probably may have stolen some of your thunder in that regard, but 
Can you talk a bit about that two-way, the importance yeah. of that two-way conversation? Well, you know, when you when you think about what is Australian multiculturalism, it's, it's this notion that people come from all around the world, they bring their cultures with them, that we basically are comfortable with people bringing all sorts of different cultures as long as they sign up to a few basic norms like commitments to, to, to the law and, and basic things like that. But we sort of broadly expect that in time people will gradually fit into the Australian way of life. But, but the flip side is that Australian way of life is not fixed in stone. It actually changes over time. The contribution of migrants to Australia means that Australia changes. So instead of tea being the most popular drink in, hot drink in Australia, now it's, now it's, now it's coffee. Instead of beer being, no, being the most popular alcoholic drink, now it's wine. And, and the European migrants contributed to that. And just slowly, imperceptibly, over time, the contribution of migrants changes what it means to be Australia. And I think the role of sport plays into that really nicely. And, and I think the examples you give really tell, us, tell a similar story about what does it mean to be Australian. And I think all of the Australians in the audience watching that game would have got a sense of the changing face of Australia, the changing meaning of, of being Australian. And to quote an excerpt from the chapter for Australia, of the 14 players who took the field that evening, 11 had parents who were immigrants who had arrived in the years following World War II, four of whom had direct links back to Croatia. Of the broader 23 players in the Socceroos squad, 18 had at least one parent born outside of Australia and seven had links back to Croatia within their lineage. Uh, John Aloisi, I wanted to delve into your family. Uh, Italian roots, the Aloisis migrated to South Australia. Um, Tell us about their story of assimilation. Yeah, my um, my dad, he's got uh, three brothers and one uh, sister and uh, to actually uh, integrate as quick as possible they found sport was a good way um, but uh, so he was my, my old man was a, a massive cricket fan and he, and he loved playing cricket I don't think he played cricket in Italy <laughs> <laughs> no Sheffield but, Shield in, in Italy yeah. <laughs> no there was no Sheffield Shield I think the, the closest Joe thing they had, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Joe Scuderi was a good fast bowler but he was South Australian yeah, born right. and bred and, and so what um they all played cricket and that was a, a way of them fitting in it, it, with their, their schoolmates and with, with people in their community. And the three brothers played AFL. My dad was the only one that actually played football. And he straight away thought, well, you know, he wanted to feel comfortable in his uh, uh, surroundings. So he went to Adelaide Juventus, then called Adelaide City. And that was an Italian club. And so that, that, that's how we ended up. That ended up being our second home. Um, and we just found it uh, so comfortable that, you know, a lot of uh, the, the, our teammates and, and the people within the club were of similar backgrounds and similar upbringings. But, yeah, that was a way of them, I think, integrating very quickly was actually finding sport was the best way. And, and they love their sport and they still do love their sport. So you could have just as easily been a fast bowler or a batsman, an all-rounder for that matter, for Australia. Oh, not me so much. I don't think. I think my brother Ross was a better uh, cricketer than what I was. I uh, I could play. I could play uh, a little bit, and uh, and I enjoyed it. 
but I wasn't as good as Ross. We used to have uh, our uh, you know backyard cricket games, our driveway cricket games, our uh, street cricket games with the rest of the neighbourhood, and uh, Ross was a standout for sure. So if it was anyone that was going to play for Australia, it would have been him. But uh, I, look, that was definitely a sport I loved in the summer, and uh, football was our winter sport. And how did your family feel around that time, John? Because that was a real turning point as John Didlitzer touches on uh, in these chapters. But that was a, a really seminal moment for Australian football and particularly the Socceroos. And it certainly changed your uh, your life and your families. It did. Uh, look, we, growing up uh, in Adelaide, you know, our dream was not only to play, you know, for the Socceroos, play in the World Cup, uh, play football at a professional level, which my dad never thought could happen to us he thought that playing the local league npl standard was you know the level that we'll probably get to and he'd be happy with that but um it was about you know sport and 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 football in general is becoming main in mainstream media now we saw that with cricket we saw it with uh, aussie rules in adelaide and you know league in uh, new south wales and queensland but you know football was never in mainstream media if you followed the nsl back then you you sort of part of a, a group that um, jd's got a good word for that group what do you call them jd a secret society yeah yeah. yeah, and and it was it was like that. There, were, there was only a few of us, and there was only you know a handful that uh, would actually follow the NSL and follow football in our country. Now, when we qualified for the World Cup, I played before I played nine years for the Socceroos, and I could walk down the street probably any time of the day, and not one person would recognise me. After the World Cup and after the Uruguay moment, uh, if I walk down the street, even now, and that's fifteen years later, uh, I'll get either uh, stop, looked at, or someone scream out, Aloisi, <laughs> uh, which s- sometimes it's a bit embarrassing. Do but they take he, their it, shirt off? <laughs> uh, well, I, w- I wish that. <laughs> oh, no, they don't. Uh, it's uh, it's something that we, you know, we dreamt about as kids that we, we could actually, uh, you know, help the game grow, um, be involved in the game that we love that, that, that would be in mainstream media. Um, little did we know that, you know, just making that World Cup, that would end up giving it a big kick. But coming back now, there's it, it's starting to go into that secret society again with the A-League. Not many people follow it. So, you know, I don't know the reasons why, but there, there must be some reason behind that. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I want to take us back to Gottlieb Daimler Stadium yep. that night. Uh, I'm there, Dave. So was I. I'm, I'm um, there. I'm just feeling it right now. I was under pretty strict deadline pressure at that stage, so probably wasn't soaking up the emotion as much as uh, as much as you guys. But the Socceroos had advanced to the knockout phase for the first time, and FIFA, blessed soul, pumped some high voltage yep. Aussie classics through the speakers. <laughs> Yeah. 
John Aloisi, that was a peak period for post-game celebrations after you boys partied with John Travolta in the change room seven months earlier. But I want to start with you, John Didelitzer. Now, you've managed to unpack these distinctly Australian themes against the backdrop of football games, and that was replicated in a musical sense mm. that night. I can, again, I still remember it like it's yesterday. And John, you probably, John Aloisi, you no doubt have a recollection of walking back out of that tunnel and hearing Akadaka blasting through that stadium. And I still remember highway to hell and high voltage back to back. And it was a transcendent moment. It was incredible. Now, when you look back now, this is a moment where I look back and reflect. This didn't occur to me at the time. But you have this situation where you have this group of migrant children, you know, the ones we've discussed earlier that were embraced by this nation, that were given, were stood on the shoulders of a successful multicultural policy from the Whitlam government in the 70s and became these incredible Australian ambassadors. So they're on the world stage. The world is watching these 11, 14, 23 players do their stuff. And they're all out on the running track that's around the Stuttgart Stadium, headbanging to Akadaka. Okay, so there's this seminal experience. Now, I unpack that a little bit further because you look at ACDC, okay, the same effectively Aussie migrant kids who went and conquered the world. And side by side, we're celebrating with Akadaka and the Socceroos on that pitch. And if you look back though, and go even further, is the architect of Akadaka wasn't necessarily Angus Young or Malcolm Young. It was their brother, George. Now, George, you may or may not know, was the brains behind Australia's first ever band to break in England called the Easy Beats. Okay, so the Easy Beats sang Friday on my mind, and we're the biggest band of the 60s in Australia. Can we have a rendition of that? No. Any of you? <laughs> no. And so Friday on my mind is huge hit. Easy Beats become the biggest thing in Australia. George learns the music industry through that and goes, aha, uh-huh, I've got a couple of talented brothers back at home. I'm going to turn them into Akadaka. Okay, so the, do you know how we formed the Easy Beats? At Villawood Migrant Centre, he met his bandmates there, another British kid and a couple of Dutch kids, didn't have anything in common, sitting around in a migrant camp, forming the heart that would become the Easy Beats and in turn ACDC. Harry Vander was the Dutch yeah, kid. Yeah, Harry Vander. So, and they became the best songwriting duo in Australian history, arguably. So you have this, you can trace back the roots of some of these Socceroos back to Bonagilla Migrant Centre in the 50s and all these migrants coming to the country and you had this alchemy in these centers that created these wonderful sports people and it created these wonderful musicians. Um, so we had this most unique Australian moment ever. The Socceroos in Germany headbanging to Akadaka that had its genesis in these migrant hostels, which is just incredible. And I think if we, we could actually, you know, bottle some of that for today, I think we'd see how more, how how far more successful we could be as a nation if we actually adopted the same approach we did then to our multicultural um, policy. And, you know, Andrew speaks to how successful we've been, yet we're almost moving away from that now, Andrew. Yeah, and I guess that does raise the question is what is the game's relationship with, uh, with the new waves of migrants? Um, where are, the, where are the, the game's supports for the South Sudanese community or other or other communities in the, in a, in a new migrant 
new migrant cohorts. I mean, the relationship with the game is very different now, I suspect, to what it was in the um, in that post-war context. You got any thoughts on that? Yeah, absolutely. And that's something we're still grappling with. Um, you know, we, it, it's, it's almost like we got to the end of a cycle with that World Cup success um, and we couldn't reinvent the game to accommodate the new wave of migrants. And I, I think a part of that, again, is trying to build a paradigm that's not uniquely Australian. You know, we're consistently trying to adopt models from outside the country into how you develop talent. We're consistently trying to see how the AFL does things, how the NRL does things, how tennis does things, how the Dutch do things. We've got to move away from that. And that, that part of the impetus of doing this book was we're starting to find a distinctly Australian voice to this game. And once we find that, we can apply it to all the different areas of our sport. Um, yeah, why don't the South Sudan... Yeah, we're seeing some wonderful players now emerging um, from that community, which is great. Into the national team, soccer Which is great. You know, so have we done enough, though? That's the question. But, you know, Awar and... Um, Ruan and, and all these wonderful players from that part of the world. Awama, hey, Bill, Thomas Deng. Yeah, Thomas Deng, Tommy Deng, doing great things. So are we doing that as well as we can, though? And that's the question. We, As football, we should have a, a fundamental role in making sure Australia culturally, not just our football teams, but Australia as a society can actually embrace these communities and help them have the same success that the Croatian community, the Italian community, the Greek community, and the others uh, enjoy it. John, back to you, back to Stuttgart, back to Akadaka. Your memories of that? Yeah, well, it was quite lucky, actually, because we finished the game, um, you know, obviously celebrated probably for about two minutes on the field, and we were back in the changing room going, how good was that? You know, what what a game. And uh, just, you know, everyone was just excited and started to get undressed, ready to go on the shower. And um, someone came in and said, by the way, the crowd hasn't left, and they're playing Akadaka outside. Go and experience it. So I can't remember who the coach was. I don't even know if it was Gus. That uh, I doubt it was Gus. But uh, <laughs> I don't was think Gus hitting an Akadaka fan? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. But you know what? It, Gus actually did end up saying, "Come on, boys, go out there and enjoy what you just achieved." And that was the best thing that could have happened to us. That that was one of the highlights of the World Cup. We had many highlights. You know, during the games and uh, even just, you know, being able to uh, have a day in Stuttgart with our family because that's where our family were staying um, when we had a day off. But after that game against Croatia, to walk outside and hear the music pumping, um, Akadaka, the songs that we all know and grew up with, and also to see that the Croatian fans behind the goals that were giving it to us a little bit during the game. I remember warming up uh, just in front of them during the game, and I was a little bit on edge because how how loud they were and how I wouldn't say aggressive. It was just one of those uh, feelings that you go, oh, this is, this could get a little bit nasty if we win this game. But after the game, they gave us a round of applause and cheered us as if uh, we we're part of their nation. And, and that felt good. And then to walk even more around and, and see all the green and gold still there and singing along with us, that was a, a definitely a highlight of uh, the, not only the World Cup but our careers. John and I both know Croatian fans don't take losses too well, so I thought that was almost the ultimate compliment for mm. the Socceroos. A lot of Croatian fans were, they weren't angry that their team lost. They almost accepted that, well, it was a draw, but um, they almost accepted that 
the better team had advanced. Yeah, look, I hate to um, bring down the intellectual tenor of this podcast, but it did remind me somewhat of Rocky Four when the uh, when the Russian crowd quickly yeah. turned um, and from about round twelve onwards, they threw their, their their substantial weight behind one Rocky Balboa and Ivan Drago was left to uh, you know meet the last rounds himself. But it was it was very much like that, John. We 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 could see it as soon as the final whistle went. You could set the Croatian fans were there to celebrate alongside us. And maybe that was part of that synergy we're talking about. They recognised the fact that as a nation, Croatia had this strong bond to the Australian people and, and were happy for us. And that's, that's the thing. There were so many twists and turns and, and sliding doors moments leading into that game that were encapsulated in that game. I mean, as you allude to in the chapters, John, Mark Viduka uh, playing against Josip Sh- uh, Šimunić, both born and bred in Australia, both playing for the Melbourne Knights, uh, had things have panned out differently. Yeah. Mark Viduka could have been wearing a Croatian t- shirt yeah. and Joe Šimunić a, a Socceroos shirt. For all intents and purposes, they had identical lives and identical careers, yet one's a central defender for Croatia and one's a striker for Australia. Like, they, they, they it's the... it's. Absolute, I don't know if it's full circles the right analogy, but it's incredible that their lives could have led them to that point. So on that day, they were polar opposites, yet their lives mirrored one another so intimately. Extraordinary to look at the impact of that evening. You t- we touched on the post-game celebrations inside the stadium. It's almost what you pay in terms of the admission fee, um, that post-game party. And as you alluded to, the biggest uh, Australian exodus since World War Two, And then 16,000 kilometres away in Australia, uh, almost 5 million people watching. There was uh, I was watching the videos uh, in the last few days and got goosebumps because I was in Germany. I never actually saw it. You saw people dancing on the streets and just extraordinary scenes. Uh, John Aloisi, when did you guys realise that you had made such a big impact? Oh, we'd realised when we got back to the hotel because, uh, look, social media wasn't massive back then. We didn't really get anything on our phones, but, uh, you know, there was a computer that everyone would jump on uh, that was uh, down in the foyer of our hotel. And um, and one of the boys went on to check to see what was, you know, happening on the news back in Australia and saw that the amount of people dancing on the street at Federation Square going off and, and you know, just the people uh, having fun... We realised then that actually this could unite a country. We'd never seen, we'd seen it in Europe, in South America, uh, in parts of Asia, but we'd never seen something so similar to that in Australia. And uh, we realised after that game, especially, that we just were, we, you know, uh, we hit home. Um, that, you know, that football could be, you know, a game that unites the whole of Australia. And then that definitely was during that period. And we felt that. Andrew, you were the only one of us that was based back here. At the time, we had the Olympic Games uh, six years earlier based in Sydney. Obviously, there were a few events uh, around Australia. But 
it, it's quite unique to football, isn't it? Where it's it's got a big following across Australia. Where, for instance, Aussie Rules uh, popular in the southern states, uh, rugby league um, and union in the northern states. Uh, cricket, I guess, is is another um, truly national sport. But take us back to, to to then. You alluded to it earlier, but the impact of that World Cup and the Socceroos' results on this city, this country. Yeah, back then, people who didn't normally follow soccer or people who didn't normally engage with the game in any great way got on board during that campaign, in that World Cup campaign, paid attention. Everyone was, uh, was watching the game with their mates talking about soccer as though they've been following it their whole life when they'd picked it up five minutes before. Uh, I think I was one of those people. And, um, and it, was, it was really quite a, quite a moment. Um, we all felt it. We all felt it. Um, we all were all uh, willing the soccer is over the line um, and, and sharing in the triumphs and the, and, the, and the tragedies of that campaign. And it was um, something um, quite, quite memorable, I think. Um, I'll throw it back to you, Andrew, You've done some significant research on the role of sport and, and particularly football in, in supporting multiculturalism, which you've you've touched on. But just want to delve a little bit deeper into the role of football and, and perhaps moving forward. How do you think football um, can continue to shape Australia? Yeah, it's interesting. One of the one of the things about Australian multiculturalism that's really unique uh, compared to what in other countries is that we've got migrants from such a diverse range of backgrounds and countries. We're not, migration to Australia isn't dominated by a single group, by a single language group. You can go to a school in Dandenong and, and there'll be 50, 60 different languages spoken amongst the students in the school. There'll be, um, there'll be 200 different ethnic groups you know, participating in the local community. And I think that's really, really strong. I think that points also to the, the future direction, really, for a game like like football. I mean, it, it needs to be able to em- embrace and encompass the full breadth and diversity of, of Australian, uh, Australian multiculturalism, um, and, and which is evolving and changing. The, the, the face of migration in Australia, as we alluded to earlier, is different from we had the, the sort of post-war Euro- uh, southern and eastern European migration in the 50s through to uh, Vietnamese uh, migration in the 70s. Uh, and, and now increasingly we've seen migration from Afghanistan and Africa and Sri Lanka and, and a whole bunch of other communities as well. And and I think the challenge is for us for a sport like like football is to adapt and change with that migrant cohort. You're quite involved in COVID policy at the moment. Could that mm. change the course of Australia's immigration story? It's absolutely changing. I mean, with the borders shut, um, we've seen um, migration basically just growing to a hold. It's t- up until March, we were seeing two hundred thousand. 200,000 people a year come to this country in, um, in terms of overseas migration, and now it's gone down to zero. So it'll, it'll make a huge, huge dent. It's, make, it's something that um, I'm not sure we really know how it's going to impact, but it, but it was certainly a massive, massive shift. And that, that may precipitate a reset to how we integrate cultures. So if we've had a period of time without this steady flow of, of incoming migrants, it may well shift the shift public sentiment around the reintroduction of large numbers 
of migrants. Now, when you look at it objectively, and in the absence of those migrants, our economy can't grow. We can't have the you know the kaleidoscope of beauty that we have in this country. But there are significant forces who rail against multiculturalism um, in the tabloid press, for example. So, it, it, the equilibrium that we'd established over fifty or sixty years through the success of um, our society could be threatened. So it'll be inc- incredibly important to see our institutions or, you know, be it sport, be it football specifically, are able to help maintain um, the success that we've had over over generations. And I think there's one really important point that Andrew raises there is there's always been different faces of migration. And that, that's why Australian football, to put it you know, overlaid into a football context, it's why Australian football needs to treat itself as a bespoke product. We cannot import other methodologies, other models of either competition or play development or administration. We're, we're unique. You know, we've got the most, we've got the, you know, arguably the most varied source of migrants. We've got a, a strong stench of British colonialism still hanging around our neck. Um, we're not a major, we're not the, you know, the mainstream favourite sport. We don't get the government funding. So we are incredibly unique. And what we need to do is actually treat ourselves as being unique and build our fo- football policy around that. Just to f- finish up on the game itself in Stuttgart, which of course this chapter is about now, your brother, Joey Didlitzer, was part of the Croatian national team squad, born and bred in Australia actually uh, represented Australia's uh, youth national teams, was actually on standby for the Socceroos for the 2003 friendly against uh, England. I actually remember delivering his shirt. I think it was number 23. I wore, I wore that at the game. <laughs> Is that right? Yeah, I, wore, I wore that at the game, yeah. There we go. Um, uh, without giving away too much, uh, we want people to read the chapter and strongly recommend they do read the chapter and, and all the chapters for that matter. But um, there's a, a great little anecdote about uh, about your brother. He didn't start in the game, but boy, oh boy, was he busy throughout and afterwards. Yeah, well, he he got the match ball, and that was one of his one of his um, objectives was to get the match ball from the game. So after the final whistle, he made a beeline for the referees' room. We all know Graham Pohl had a nightmare, so he was. Yeah. <laughs> well, this multiculturalism yeah. absolutely baffled Graham Pohl, didn't it? He gave so, Josip Šimić three yellow cards. He didn't know if it was play- two. One was for when he played for Australia. One was when he played for Croatia. Um, so he made a beeline. He wanted that match ball uh, because he, he he knew it was a famous. He knew it was going to be a, a famous match. And you know, I tell the story of his journey from the change room to that referees room, and it was his whole life. In 30 seconds, it was bumping into Josip Skoko, his childhood friend. It was bumping into Jason Chalina, not only a childhood friend who he met at North Geelong through his dad, Branko, but his teammate at Ajax, who, who went on that massive journey together. He bumped into Bresciano, Grella, Archie, all guys that he'd grown up with through the Talent ID programs and played against um, in Australia before heading off overseas. So this game captured his life in a moment and the walk from the dressing room to the referee's room did the same thing. And, um, you know, the reason he wanted that match ball was so he could give it to my grandfather and my grandfather who'd left Croatia, come to Australia, built a football club, built a life for himself. And he thought that would be the perfect souvenir to capture his life. And fortunately before my grandfather died, my brother was able to give him that match ball and say, thank you for what you did. So yeah, it was an incredible um, yeah, for me, it's like, it's a very personal story for me. 
Um, but equally, I, I think it's a powerful story for the nation to demonstrate why, how football helped Australia become the wonderful multicultural country that it became. Um, and it wasn't, you know, and that shouldn't be conflated with saying that multiculturalism invented football. It didn't. Football existed in this country for 70 or 80 years before um, the, the Southern Europeans in particular came. And what, for those who haven't listened to it, I recommend you listen to the first podcast where we touched on that extensively with yourself, Andy Harper and Tracy Holmes. So it existed. What football did was help fuse Australia into the wonderful country it became by giving these immigrant communities, you know, Andrew describes it really well, the settlement services that now we run through a bureaucracy, we're run, we're run through these not-for-profit community organisations. So it's, it's football helped this nation become what it is today. Um, yet we don't celebrate that. Mm. And I've got a vision of, of your families. I know there was a lot of articles as well leading into that World Cup, the Skokos and the Diddlitzers back in Bell Park, Bell Post Hill, um, mm. you know, wearing their uh, red and white kits or their Socceroos kits, depending on which family they were part of. But um, back to you, John Aloisi, I just wanted to get you to reflect on those chaotic scenes at the end of the game. And you actually scored a goal, which uh, I don't understand why it didn't Yeah, never. I've never stand. understand either, David. And there was that much happening yeah. in that game that no one has ever really elaborated <laughs> yeah. on it. Well, the whole uh, of the last probably 20 minutes was chaotic. Big time. I think, I think when uh, Gus made those changes uh, and brought myself, Josh Kennedy on, and I think it was Bresciano. Yeah. Uh, I'm pretty Bresci- sure Bresciano didn't start. I remember him being on when we scored the goal. Bresciano. Towards Kennedy. Might drop for Kuhl. has come up with a golden goal and we're back tied at 2-2 Bresciano's delivery I think it was uh, Aloisi who might have got the flick on important touch and Harry Kuehl fairly lashed the ball home from close range um, it, it was lo- sort of like that uh, there were two parts to our team you know there was attack and defence we just had no midfield <laughs> and it was just it was so open and you know and, and that's how we ended up scoring the goal we had about uh, five or six players attacking players in the box when Bresciano played that ball in and I got a flick on and, and Harry put it a, put it away. He wasn't and offside. Then, yeah, it was offside. <laughs> they saw that I touched the ball. If, if VAR existed, I know. he would have lost the game. And we wouldn't be talking about this now. We would and, not be doing this know. podcast. <laughs> Even after that, there was only like, God, I can't remember how long to go, but it was just mayhem. There was, there was things going on, the three yellow cards and the red card and you know, it was uh, then we we had a, a long throw in. Josh Kennedy gets a flick on, and uh, as I've actually I've connected the ball, and as it's travelling into the back of the net, the referee blows, and I'm like, going, did he blow a whistle for Josh Kennedy giving away a foul? And so I I looked at him, and it was like that's the end of the game, and uh, and I went up to him, and I go, why'd you blow the whistle for? I said, I just scored. The ball actually hit the back of the net <laughs> yeah. as he was still blowing the whistle. And he said, oh, don't worry, John, you, you're going through anyway. And I'm like, we would have won the game 3-2. I would have had another goal at a World Cup. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was gutted. <laughs> yeah, I, it was uh, about 30 seconds that, uh, that I, I started to think, oh, okay, we're through. And then I started <laughs> to celebrate. But it, it, uh, when I look back, I'm thinking, what he did that game, what a nightmare of a game that he had. And gl- I'm glad he retired straight after that game. <laughs> game 
Yeah, he's robbed you a key goal. I mean, you would have had 28 Socceroos goals. You could have been competing for the FIFA World Cup golden boot. But I actually interviewed Graham Paul a, a couple of years later, and he still didn't know what had happened. He was just completely rattled uh, by the occasion. Um, we're in stoppage time. Uh, wanted to obviously wrap things up. Andrew, just starting with you, can we get some closing remarks? Yeah, well... Australia is a fantastic multicultural country and, and, and football has been a massive part of that story. And I think the challenge um, and the opportunity now is for football to be a part of that story as part of our multicultural future as well as its past. Fantastic. John Aloisi, can we replicate those scenes from 2006 on and off the field? That's a big question, Dave. I, I hope we can, um, but for us to do that, we, we actually need to uh, not only have players playing at the highest level in Europe, and that's uh, playing either Premier League or La Liga or, or Serie A, like we did back then. Um, so then, you know, because now, you know, you can watch those leagues uh, weekly on, on anything, you know, with social media, how it is, and all the platforms and then the television stations that you've got now, especially up the sport that show the Premier League week in, week out. Great that, platform. Uh, yeah, it is a great platform. Uh, and, and then not only qualifying for World Cups, because everyone's accepted that we're going to qualify every four years, even though it's not easy and it's a massive achievement, people want more. And to, to replicate that, we need to get through the group stages and go even further. So then we're creating history. And I think that's when we'll see that we are changing a, 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 a people's opinion that we're not just a, 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 you know, a sport that, you know, yes, it's well liked here in Australia, but it's not the number one sport. Until then, I don't know if we are going to replicate that. John Didelitzer, as the author of these chapters uh, running on the Optus Sport platform. So what are your closing remarks? I do feel as if I've said enough throughout this podcast, but I'll just add, I suppose, as a as an endnote to this is, you know, we should be so proud as a code as to what we've contributed to the Australian story. And, you know, multiculturalism sits at the anchor of our success. And that wouldn't have been possible without the role of our many football clubs. Um, we should draw such pride from that. And we should wear that as a badge of honour rather than trying to, you know, um, contort ourselves into all these different positions and roles to meet some mythical version of what it means to be Australia. Because as Andrew said, Australia is so varied, it's so different. Let's accept it. Let's be proud of it. Let's embrace it. Let's own it. Um, and I don't think we have. So hopefully moving forward, we can. Andrew Weir, John Aloisi, thank you very much for joining us on this special Football Belongs podcast series for Optus Sport. We'll be back again very soon. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.